reading Luke chapter 9, starting at verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, Follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. And Jesus said, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. That's the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Okay. So I really got fixated on that phrase, he set his mind on Jerusalem. He set his eyes toward Jerusalem. Because this morning, I'm back for the first time. I'm actually, I walked in the door this morning for the first time in 18 days. It's not 100% true. I had to pick something up yesterday, but it wasn't like being here, you know. And so here I am doing something I rarely do, which is to schedule my vacation so that I come back on a Sunday. There are all kinds of reasons that's not a good idea. But here I am. And I have to admit that Friday morning when I got the news about Carl, I found myself having to set my mind on Jerusalem. You know, I had to say, well, Dan, vacation's over. It's time to get back to work. I love my job. You know I do. And I love you. And I don't have any problem with being here. But who doesn't appreciate sleeping in regularly for a few days in a row and not being responsible for everything that you're usually responsible for, you know. So I, I have to admit, it was, it was sobering for me to realize on Friday that nothing had stopped around here. It's time for me to get back to work. And by the way, that's one of the exciting things about Shiloh that I love so much is that there's always something going on here. There's a steady stream of activity in this church, and there will be more as we continue to move toward our goal of being vital to the well-being of the community by being Christian disciples, as Courtney described. So I'm very grateful to a terrific staff who takes good care of things in my absence, and when I'm here, makes me succeed all the more as I try to help them succeed all the more. I'm really grateful for this terrific group of lay leaders we have. And I'm especially thankful for George and Courtney giving terrific messages last, these last two weeks and inspiring you as God has inspired them. So all of that has made being gone easier and coming back easier. But I am nevertheless struck with the fact that my first time in the pulpit after a couple of weeks out, I'm dealing with Jesus facing something I'm not sure he was excited about. The passage describes Jesus setting his mind on going to Jerusalem, and we have to know from a larger context what he's talking about here, because what he means is it's now time for him to fulfill the final part of his earthly purpose. 
which is to bear unspeakable evil upon his shoulders for our sake and then go through the process of separation from God because of sin that he takes upon himself for our sake and then the resurrection. And so it's, it's not something he's looking forward to. This is not something he wants to do. And yet, and, and by the way, you know how I know that? Because he said in the garden, Lord, if there's any other plan, I'm ready to hear it right now. You know, I mean, so we know he didn't look forward to what he was doing in Jerusalem, but he was resolute about doing it. So again, as we read those passages in verses 51 to 56, we see a kind of weird uh, collection of, of ideas. We see resolve on Jesus' part. We see resistance on the part of the Samaritans. And then we hear James and John, you know their nicknames are Sons of Thunder, saying, well, let's just call down some lightning and, and let's just fix these guys right now. And context will make this make more sense, I think. So you have to remember the larger story and realize that whenever Jesus was in his ministry mode, most of the time was spent in Galilee or the region of the Galilee. Um, He wasn't in Jerusalem as often as he was in places around Galilee. There was this chain of cities called the Decapolis. He spent a lot of time around the, the, the region of Galilee visiting these different cities, and his home base was in Capernaum. And then in the more unpleasant wilderness land up above the green and fertile valleys around the Sea of Galilee, that was where the Samaritans lived. And the Samaritans were not very fond of Jews because Jews had never been very kind to them. But Jesus had developed quite a following among the Samaritans as well. And he was a Jew they liked and trusted. And they were with him. Remember the woman at the well in Samaria brought all of her friends. He had a grassroots movement in Samaria. And these people were for him and with him. But their perspectives were different. See, the Galilean disciples had been with him when he was performing amazing miracles. He raised the dead. He made miraculous fish catches. He fed thousands at a time through miracles. He he did unbelievable things. He called storms uh, and told, you know, told the storm to settle down. Shut up, and the storm settles down. I mean, there's just, they've seen mighty power come from Jesus. Samaritans, on the other hand, at least as far as the Bible tells us, have witnessed more personal and spiritual transformation. You don't hear a lot of stories in the Bible about miracles being performed in Samaria. That doesn't mean they didn't happen, but let's go with what we know. A lot of powerful miracles happened in Galilee, in the Galilee region, but mostly what we hear about in the Samaritan villages are people whose lives are changed through acceptance and through forgiveness and grace. Um, These are people whose lives are changed simply because they're being treated by a Jewish rabbi in a way they've never been treated before. So given this basic underlying vision of things, it's easy to imagine that the Galilean disciples said, yep, let's go to Jerusalem and kick some butt. Right? That's kind of the way they were talking. And the reason I know that is because when somebody wasn't going along with the program, a couple of them said, let's just call down some lightning and smoke these guys and get on up there to Jerusalem. So what was their vision? They were imagining Jesus through miraculous power 
conquering the center of power at Jerusalem and ruling the world as the Messiah king. But they were, of course, imagining an earthly kingdom. Samaritans, on the other hand, must have had a different idea because when they resisted him going to Jerusalem, I mean, did you hear that? It said he had his heart set on going to Jerusalem and fulfilling his purpose there, but the Samaritans resisted. They said, no, don't do that. Put yourself in these people's shoes for a moment and imagine what would you do if someone you love was bent on fulfilling a suicide mission? If you had a, you know, I, I, I don't know, maybe you love Pastor Dan and you think I'm a, a, a good leader and you want me to stick around for a while. And then I say, well, I've decided that I'm going to go work uh, in the mission field somewhere, you know, where Ebola is rampant. Would you not resist that? Would you not in love say, Pastor, we'd rather you stay with us. We'd rather you stay and care for us and continue to help us become what we want to become. And, and, and we don't want you to go there. And besides, you might catch some deadly disease and never come back. I mean, putting yourself in that situation makes you understand a little better why the Samaritans resisted the way that they did. It also says something about James and John because they're basically like, man, if you're not with me, you're against me. You remember later in another story where Jesus had a couple of disciples come up and say, did you know that that guy's preaching in your name and doing this and that, and he's not one of us? And what did Jesus say? If he's not against us, he's for us. So the disciples' mindset, the Galilean disciples' mindset is, if you're not with me, you're against me. And Jesus says, no, it's the other way around. If you're not against me, you're with me. So I think there was great love between Jesus and the Samaritans, and it's because they imagined that if he kept, a, you know, if he stayed with them for a while, they could raise up an army and they would do this the old-fashioned way, you know, because they felt that if he stayed with them, they would eventually see the fulfillment of the Messianic kingdom, but they didn't really see where it was going to end well for him, and you know, in a way, they were right. So that's just a way of making sense out of the story as you heard it. But now we get into that next passage that says, one guy says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And another person says, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And another one says, I'll follow you, Lord, but let me go say farewell to my family. And Jesus says, I know you're serious. I believe you. I know you're sincere, but you don't understand. This is... This is not going to go the way you think it will go. I really believe, and it is my strong opinion, that Jesus was not condemning them when he said, well, let the, bury, let the dead bury the dead and all that, but basically saying, what I have to do in Jerusalem, only I can do. I think that's what Jesus was saying to them. Is there nobody else that's going to be able to do this? And truly, that's how it worked out. We have the benefit of hindsight. We know when Jesus got there, how much help were the disciples, especially the 12 apostles, in, you know who the most useful person in Jesus' plan in Jerusalem was? Judas. <laughs> you know, the most helpful apostle to fulfilling Jesus' plan was Judas. Now, I don't mean Judas was a good guy or anything. I'm just saying he's the only one that actually played a significant role in helping Jesus fulfill his plan. And, you know, Jesus was in charge of the timing. Don't miss that. Remember that when Judas betrayed him, it was because Jesus said, we're going to do this now. And by saying that, 
he forced Judas's hand because Judas said, uh-oh, they're not going to wait till after the Passover, which is what the authorities wanted. And so Jesus was calling the shots. He pushed the agenda. He's the one that decided when Judas would go and betray him. And my point is, is to say that, that Jesus makes it very clear that if you don't understand one thing about him, you need to understand that only he could do in Jerusalem what he did. And that's what he was saying to these folks. I know none of this makes sense to you. I understand you don't get where I'm going with this. And I understand that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Nevertheless, follow me. So here's the conclusion. It's really simple. The cost of discipleship might seem like it's all about suffering for Jesus because you wanted to portray, you know, you, you want to proclaim the gospel and, and people threw rocks at you. You, you. you gave to the poor and the poor didn't say thank you. You, you suffered in some way or another the indignities and insults that come from people who think that Christians are foolish. And, and, you know, following Jesus does come at that cost. But the cost that every single one of us here today will bear for following Jesus is the one that's described in the passage we just read. You will follow him when it doesn't make any sense to follow him. You will, you will love him even when little girls die in weird and tragic circumstances, you'll still love him as your Savior and Lord. You will follow him wherever he tells you to go and trust his goodness in all times and in all places, even when sweet, dear grandmothers die under weird circumstances like traffic accidents and CO2 in their house and, and carbon monoxide, I mean. And, and so, uh, you know, you'll follow him when another person falls to cancer and the family is left grieving. You see, the cost of discipleship is believing in his goodness and the ultimate plan that God has for us, even when Jesus says, I'm going to be doing some things you can't participate in and some of it isn't going to make any sense to you. The cost of discipleship is to believe and to trust and to love the Lord all the time, even when you question your own foolishness for doing so. And that's something we deal with every day, don't we? There's no one here, even right now, who can't say, yeah, that's a cost that I've had to bear because I trust Jesus for my eternal salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your word. Now burn it upon our hearts. Change our very nature, we pray. Help us to trust you even when it doesn't make any sense. Help us to be faithful and to follow you with the resolve of one who keeps their eye on the end of the furrow line and makes a straight path toward you. Amen. Amen.